I came across this video whilst looking into the topic of this podcast. It's an interview with a woman from mid-2022. Her name is Mariam Obeid, and she was being interviewed by the news organisation Middle East Eye. She was speaking from a small village in Sudan, where, dressed in a yellow and white headscarf, she looks down as she softly speaks. But it isn't until the interviewer starts to ask her about her eldest son, Nizar, and whether he used to help her out that she begins to crack. He used to help me out a lot, my boy Ali. Before, overcome with emotion, she pulls her yellow headscarf over her eyes, hiding her tears from the camera. You see, Nazar had taken on the responsibility of supporting his family. And to do that, he began mining for gold in the neighbouring country, Central African Republic. Mariam composes herself, lets the headscarf fall a little from her face, and then she says, The Russians killed him. Welcome to Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. And this is the Wagner Group in Sudan. Part two, it's the worst kept secret in Sudan. At the end of part one, we started to look into the Wagner affiliated company Merui Gold which was awarded mining concessions in 2017 by the previous president, Omar al-Bashir. Protests by artisanal miners resulted in the death of one of those miners, and it's alleged that the shots were fired by a Wagner mercenary. Please go back and listen to the previous episode. It'll introduce you to all the key players in this story and give you the context for this episode. Okay, so let's take a closer look at those contracts awarded to Meroe Gold. First and foremost, in Sudan, a foreign mining company with a mining export license must set up a production company after any discovery. The Ministry of Minerals gets 30% of the shares of these production companies. What makes Meroe different is that Omar al-Bashir, when granting that initial license, waived that right. This happened three more times with three different locations over the next couple of months. So the obvious question is why? This is Khaloud Kher, the founder and director of Confluence Advisory, which is a think tank in Khartoum. The ties between Bashir and Moscow, as well as with Wagner, sort of really strengthened around 2017. And I think because at that time Bashir realised that he was facing a lot of internal opposition. He had wanted to run for a third term in the elections of 2020, which of course never happened because he was deposed before then. The impact of the loss of oil production from the secession of South Sudan in 2011 had by 2017 caught up with the Bashir regime. And he found himself unable to maintain the very large, very bloated patrimonial network that he had cultivated throughout his 30-year reign. And so he needed to be able to find a partner that would be able to support that. So, you know, that's where Wagner was able to come in, not just as a private military company and not just as a military partner, but also as an economic one. And so that's when we saw M Invest, a company that is headed by Evgeny Prigozhin, who, of course, runs Wagner, set up Meroe Gold in Sudan. And that then allowed the Bashir regime to really make the most out of not just gold production in the traditional sense, but also make the most out of artisanal mining and sort of being able to extract more out of gold tailings than just what is readily extractable from the rocks. And so this has sort of allowed this shadow economy around gold to mushroom from 2017 onwards. Remember, the Wagner Group were invited into the African countries in which they operate. But it's also important to recognise that they are often invited by weakened autocratic governments who are seeking support against an internal threat. And that is part of Wagner's strategy. We know this because of a cache of leaked documents from Wagner itself. 
Back in 2019, when these documents were passed to the Dossier Centre, an investigative unit based out of London and funded by exiled Kremlin critic Mikhail Khodorkovsky, these documents highlighted Russian ambitions on the African continent. Now, that is nothing odd. The United States and China, as well as other Western countries like France, have what they see as strategic interests on the continent, just like they do in other parts of the world. But what makes this leak so interesting is that this push into the continent was being led by Yevgeny Prigozhin, the leader of the Wagner Group. And the group had identified several countries that they were not only already working with closely, but others that they wanted to target. Here's Julia Stanyard, senior analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime and author of the paper, The Grey Zone, Russia's Military, Mercenary and Criminal Engagement in Africa. What is interesting in terms of understanding what their internal logic is and their sort of strategy is that there was actually a overarching Africa strategy document that was leaked from inside Wagner in late 2019, which actually set out in you know, a huge amount of detail exactly which countries in Africa they were targeting. It ranked them all on a scale of one to five as to which were their strongest interests on which categories they scored. And the overarching aims that they described were both economic incentives, but also a political incentive, like wanting to displace Western interests or places, particularly where countries like France had a presence. So, you know, somewhere like Mali, for example. And so it was interesting to see articulated in that document that it does have this dual aim of being kind of an economic purpose and also a political strategy of displacing European and Western interests. We had part of that document shared with us and they identify things. So if you take, for example, Cameroon, they identified this as a high level priority. They identified the fact that there is the conflict between the Anglophone in, in the Anglophone region of Cameroon as a potential way in for them to you know, exploit that conflict. And, you know, certain things to do with the political instability of that country that they saw as an advantage or a potential way in. So both it seems to be an analysis of the vulnerabilities of that particular country and also what it presents to Wagner as an economic incentive. A more recent example of this is Mali. You see, Mali is one of Africa's largest gold producers, but also is rich in other natural resources like silver, diamonds, lithium and other rare metals. But it's also a country racked by instability following two military coups and the resulting diplomatic isolation from regional bodies like ECOWAS and the African Union. Suspended, then reinstated, now suspended again. Mali is no longer part of the African Union after its second coup in nine months. The previous one in August saw the country kicked out of the bloc until it named the heads of a civilian-led transitional government. But they were deposed by Colonel Asimi Goita, who was declared president last week. Somali ticks all the right boxes for Wagner involvement. The quid pro quo arrangement. According to the commander of the US Africa Command, General Stephen J. Townsend, the US has, and I quote, reason to believe that the Malian government tab for Wagner's services is $10 million a month. I don't know where the Malian government comes up with $10 million a month, so I think they will have to trade in kind with natural resources such as gold and other minerals, gemstones and those kinds of things, because I don't know how they will come up with $10 million a month in cash. In the Central African Republic, another country that has suffered multiple civil wars, which also happens to have significant natural resources, Wagner has established its most developed relationship, as described in the GI's report, The Grey Zone, Russia's Military, Mercenary and Criminal Engagement in Africa. Here's Thierry Verkelon, a research associate at the French Institute for International Affairs in Paris, member of the GI network of experts, and a lead author on The Grey Zone report. The Wagner Group is developing uh, services and activities in, in various fields, military, political, communication, and uh, economy. So the Wagner Group is like a holding, actually, with uh, various services provided by various companies. And uh, in CAR, it's actually uh, Wagner, the Wagner Group is actually providing the, the, the whole uh, range of its uh, services to uh, the government. It provides uh, military services, meaning uh, training, uh, transportation of troops, and, and even support in combat for the car army. It provided uh, political uh, advice uh, 
for the um, sort of the car government. It provided propaganda support for the uh, electoral campaign in 2020. And it's also uh, developing economic activities in the mining and in the logging uh, business. And uh, it even uh, went as far as providing expertise for tax uh, custom collection at the main border post between uh, the Central African Republic and Cameroon. So that's that's what uh, we, we mean in the report when we're saying that Wagner Group in the car is actually the most developed business model at this stage among the uh, African countries where Wagner is present. In the CAR, Wagner gained control of a significant gold mining area previously occupied by rebel forces, the Endosima mine. We've collected testimonies uh, by local people in the, the mining areas, for instance, uh, who saw uh, Wagner uh, elements come and go and, and buy uh, uh, gold or, or diamonds. But they started a, a local company who was allocated mining rights by the uh, car government in the western part of the country. They have took over the Endasima mine uh, also with the front company, and they have deployed some machinery and also some military equipment to secure that uh, that mine, and it's a, it's a gold mine. And uh, what is striking is that uh, while we know they are, they are buying gold and uh, digging gold, actually, there is almost no gold exports uh, registered in the uh, export statistic of the car. So uh, there's definitely smuggling, and uh, CAR is definitely uh, producing gold. Wagner is definitely involved in the exploitation of gold, but still there is no uh, sign of that in the trade export statistics. Remember the story about the artisanal miner that was killed in Sudan, allegedly by a Russian guard? Well, levels of violence allegedly perpetrated by Wagner in the CAR and Mali have been much higher than in Sudan. Here's Khaloud again. In Mali, where, of course, the massacre at Moura saw 300 people dead, of course, that was a supposed anti-jihadi campaign. A Security Council request for independent investigations into the alleged Moura massacre in Mali has been blocked by Russia. The request, drafted by France, had been submitted to the UN Security Council on Friday. According to several diplomats, Moscow opposed it, supported by Beijing. NGO Human Rights Watch reported the summary execution of 300 civilians by Malian soldiers associated with foreign fighters between March 27 and 31 in Moura. But I don't think we will, we will see those kinds of instances in Sudan because there's much more organization within sort of civil forces, for example, through a neighborhood resistance committees in gold mining areas who have been bringing together different artisanal miners and sort of organizing protests um, to gold mining and artisanal miners associations who've also been holding protests and making demands on the authorities. So I think that there's sort of a different social dynamic there that means that the level of violence that we have seen in other countries, including, of course, the Central African Republic, we haven't quite seen in Sudan. But I don't think that's a guarantee that we won't see increasing violence from the junta and their backers. We have seen an uptick in violence across the country, particularly in areas that have gold mining, for example, in Darfur, in South Kordofan, in Blue Nile. Some of these instances of conflict seem to be what is often termed, I think, incorrectly intercommunal violence, as if, you know, the entirety of the conflict dynamics is is localized rather than related to broader power structures. But oftentimes when we see these outbreaks of violence, they are in or around gold mining areas. And so there was considerable concern that perhaps some of these conflicts were being stoked in gold mining areas in order to clear them through displacement following conflict and allow access to those sites for gold mining companies, both Sudanese and Wagner-related companies, which of course would be a very unfortunate development, but certainly one that I think we need to look more into. What Khaloud said there about the possibility of stoking violence in areas of gold mining interest It's a really interesting theory and one that Justin Lynch, researcher and author of Sudan's Unfinished Democracy, also touched on. 
I remember in the early days of the protests, RSF troops walking up to me and speaking Russian because I look a bit Russian and I speak Russian a little bit as well. So I would speak back to them. And they had been trained by Russians. They had been trained by either the Wagner Group or the Russian military themselves. And I would often talk with Sudanese who were in border towns on the Central African Republic. And they would describe how there was Russian helicopters that would come in and out of the town. It was a small town named Um Dafuk, which is on the border of the Central African Republic. And there was a Wagner Russian base there. It was never clear to the residents of this town whether it was Wagner or, or whether it was the Russian military. But what they would say is that gold and other minerals from the Central African Republic were basically taken across the border to Sudan and that they were kind of flown out from this border town. And so it's not necessarily hard to find where the Russians are in Khartoum, and they don't really pretend to try and hide themselves either. I remember speaking with some senior commanders in the Rapid Support Forces, and they would say that you know they have Russians embedded in the headquarters and in the offices of the RSF. But it was really interesting because when you spoke with the RSF, they would kind of tell you, yeah, I mean, of course, we're kind of scamming them. And of course, we're kind of ripping them off. And you know, these Russians aren't very smart. They would tell me that the Russians would try and pretend that they wanted to go to areas that had recently seen conflict to do sightseeing or to do, you know, geological scientific research. Because in Sudan, you need a permission slip to travel outside into other areas of the country. And so the RSF would say, look, you know, they would always come to us asking for permission to areas where they had just seen conflict. And of course, we knew why they were going there, but they always wanted to pretend like it was this big mystery. And so it's really interesting that relationship that, you know, even the RSF, when you kind of get to know them and you get to talk to them, are pretty blunt with the fact that, yeah, you know, the Russians are using us, but we're also using them. One thing that emerged earlier this year was the possible role of the RSF in the Central African Republic. Hermeti claimed that his forces had helped stop a possible coup in the CAR in December. The Coalition of Patriots for Change, or CPC, in the Central African Republic denied any coup attempts and instead accused the RSF of supporting Wagner against them within the borders of the CAR. Umdefuk, the place that Justin just mentioned, is an interesting place because it is a site of a Wagner base, and it's close to traditional artisanal gold mines, but it's also right on the border with the Central African Republic, where Wagner has a significant presence. It's also the place that the Central African Republic opposition forces claimed the RSF was massing forces, although Hermeti denied this. It's also important to mention here that, according to a UN report in 2019, the RSF was actually selling weapons and military equipment to the same groups Hermeti now accuses of plotting a coup. According to news outlet Radio Dabanga in Sudan, it was also here in Umdefuk that in 2018 they described Russian private security companies providing military training for some 600 Seleka Muslim rebels from CAR and Sudanese soldiers. Again, quite interesting considering the closeness Wagner has to the government of the Central African Republic, the same government that the Seleka are fighting against. It was reported that this could be related to gaining access to mining concessions that are currently located in areas under rebel control. Remember the video I talked about at the start, Mariam talking about the murder of her son? You see, the Russians that Mariam alleges caused her son's death are thought to be Wagner Group mercenaries. And Nizar was just one of a number of artisanal miners working in the gold mines of the Central African Republic who were attacked and killed over a six-week period by Wagner Group mercenaries. Grave human rights abuses including rape, summary executions, targeted killings, torture, forced disappearances, murders, and other abuses. I mean, we're talking about war crimes here potentially, are we not? Witnesses speaking to The Guardian newspaper alleged that Wagner swept through encampments full of migrant miners and mine workers and shot indiscriminately with automatic weapons, smashed equipment, destroyed buildings and stole motorbikes. 
One artisanal miner talking to Middle East Eye from Umdafuk said that he and 20 family members originally left Sudan due to insecurity in Darfur, only to be chased out of the CAR, allegedly by Wagner mercenaries, who then allegedly killed six family members and looted all of his money and gold. And according to Ken Opala, the field network coordinator for East and Southern Africa at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, we've started to see a similar thing in Sudan. Yeah, in Darfur, of course, the mercenaries clear swaths of land to pave way for gold mining. They do this through forceful evictions and translocations of populations, mostly of immigrants. In Sudan, it's very easy to evict people because uh, they have no legal position of land. They have no rights. So hundreds of hundreds of villagers, immigrants, some gold miners have died in this kind of raids carried out by helicopters, armored vehicles, and rocket launcher pickups. Those that fled the attacks in the Central African Republic walked mile upon mile without food or water, just trying to get to the safety of home. Tragically for Mariam, Nizar never made it. He was buried in the Central African Republic, far away from his home, and he was just 20 years old. We've talked a lot about Wagner and the Rapid Support Forces, the RSF. But what about the Sudanese Armed Forces, or SAF? The Sovereign Council is run not by Hemeti, but a man called General Abdel Fattah al-Buhan. And the Sudanese military similarly have a working relationship with Wagner and the RSF. Here's Holud Khair. It's a relationship that is, I would say, it's one of the best-kept secrets, but it's also, uh, what should I say, the worst-kept secret in Sudan, because neither side fully admits to having a relationship with the other. There is a symbiosis, you know. It seems that Russia needs the RSF and to some extent the Sudanese government as well in order to extract gold. And the Sudanese government needs Russia and its ability to look the other way on human rights abuses and illegal activity. And because of that, you actually have a very difficult thing to penetrate, even when you know the writing is very much on the wall. And we know that the Sudanese government in all its guises through RSF through the Sudan Armed Forces, through military intelligence as well. All parts of the Sudanese coup regime or the junta is embedded with Wagner's operations in Sudan. And so it becomes very difficult to see how, one, how those things can be extricated from each other, but two, how then you can work alongside members of the junta to bring about a democratic dispensation that actually in, in, in the sort of short and medium term, as well as long term, may not serve them or their benefactors in Moscow. So what we have, for example, today is the criminality, I think, behind the gold smuggling industry being effectively center stage for how the junta has conducted its operations in Sudan. A great example of how the military are involved with Wagner is through a company called Aswa Multi-Activities Company Limited. This is a Sudanese company allegedly linked to Sudanese military intelligence. Meroe Gold contracted this company to provide military planes. This contract also gives Wagner access to military airfields as well as logistical support and weapons. So we have seen Meroe Gold sort of expand its tentacles across different aspects of the security sector, for example, with military intelligence in its company called Aswar Multi-Activities, which is itself a private military company like Wagner, also sort of becoming an operational arm of this enterprise, allowing gold being smuggled through airplanes to fly through Sudanese Air Force planes and to land on military bases, allowing for the sort of outsourcing of sovereign privileges from the Sudanese government to Wagner-affiliated entities or through other entities within this sort of shadow economy of gold. And that has, of course, enriched both Moscow, but also the Sudanese military in Khartoum. According to documents seen by the Dossier Centre, these contracts show that Meroe Gold and its parent company, M Invest, which, remember, is at the heart of Prigozhin's business empire, they agreed to pay Azwa $100,000 every month, as well as $200,000 up front as a goodwill fee. But it doesn't end there. It also agreed to pay all of Azwa's taxes and fees owed to the government and the salaries of all its staff. 
but NEM Invest staff coming into the country. Aswa asked for an additional $500 per staff member it helped to get into the country because one of Aswa's services was immigration assistance. Here's Justin again. Well, it's certainly not a secret that the RSF and the Sudanese military are partnering with Russia and are partnering with Wagner. But in many ways, they are powerless to stop it, right? It's corruption that happens in the open. And there's no need to really be secretive about it. Everybody in these towns where this mining happens knows, wait, you know, why are these Russians here, right? So they're not really trying to hide it. And they and they don't really hide it because they don't really need to, right? The RSF and the Sudanese armed forces are the law. And so they can create the rules that they want. Now, as we've already discussed, Wagner are operating in a number of countries on the African continent. And you can read all about it in the GI report, The Grey Zone, Russia's Military, Mercenary and Criminal Engagement in Africa, which goes into detail on a number of the different countries. I wanted to mention this because, as we've said before, that report describes Wagner's most developed relationship in the neighbouring country to Sudan, the Central African Republic. Merowi Gold hired an aviation company called El Riada. Their job was to transport things between Sudan and the Central African Republic. What they were transporting was military equipment for the Wagner forces active in the CAR. Indeed, import records collected by C4ADS, the Centre for Advanced Defence Studies, show that a range of military and construction equipment, including MI-8T helicopters, were sent. These were sent to Merowi Gold in Sudan by both M Finance and M Invest, the two companies at the heart of Prigozhin's corporate web. These helicopters were subsequently identified in the Central African Republic. And we know this because one of the helicopters had the tail number RA-06114, and that same one appeared on a video produced for the president of the CAR that was uploaded to YouTube. Does this mean Merowi Gold was also a supplier of military-grade weapons as well as a gold mining company? How these weapons and helicopters got into the CAR perhaps can be explained by the contracts that the Dossier Centre shared with the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project. They showed that Azwa was required to store or transfer any weapons, and then clear them for transit between ports and airports. And this is the important point, even allowing them to use military signal codes, which means its flights would not be recorded on commercial flight tracking systems. This deal with Aswa was set up during Omar al-Bashir's regime, and yet has continued since. Here's Khaloud again. Now, of course, this didn't save Bashir. This hadn't allowed him to maintain his position and to remain in power. But what has become sort of increasingly clear since his fall in 2017 is that, that his economic and political system, both within the Sudan Armed Forces and within sort of the civilian wing of the Islamist movement, is that that regime effectively lost its CEO in Bashir and has now replaced that CEO with General Burhan, but that system seems to be, you know, reasonably intact. One thing that you start to recognise when looking into Wagner is its love of complex corporate structures. There is a web of companies based all over the world. So let me give you an example of how this works. Back in 2018, a consignment of police batons, uniforms, etc. was sent by M Finance in St. Petersburg to a company called Lobey Invest in the Central African Republic via a state-owned mining company in Madagascar, which was exploring a joint venture with an obscure Russian mining firm. According to C4ADS, three shipments destined for the Central African Republic also listed the recipient's address as 3505 South Ocean Drive, Hollywood, Florida, a popular address for registering companies. In July 2020, the US Department of the Treasury sanctioned M-Invest and Merowi Gold. According to the US, they enabled Prigozhin the ability to evade sanctions. And they claim that to oversee its activities on the ground, M-Invest relies upon its subsidiary, Merowi Gold. Just to close on the corporate structures, there is much more detail, so I'll link to the various investigations in the podcast notes, including the one by the GI. 
But Mary Gold didn't just receive shipments of helicopters and other military equipment on behalf of the Wagner-affiliated companies in the Central African Republic. They were also supplied with a consignment of riot control gear by a Prigozhin-linked company, Broker Expert. They received this on behalf of Esnad Engineering, which is a company controlled by the family of Hermeti, the leader of the RSF. Esnad Engineering has also received shipments directly from M-Invest and Broker Expert. It's important to say that these complex structures and connections don't indicate criminality. Loads of companies use different entities and shell companies. So I put this question to Julia Stanyard, the author of the Grey Zone paper. Is it fair to single out these entities? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a completely fair question. And we obviously don't want our reporting to, to seem like it's singling out these entities just for their links to Russia in a scaremongering way, for example. What we think stands out with the Wagner-linked companies is it seems to span this grey zone between legal and illegal, and they're leveraging whatever legal access they they have to these mining concessions and so on to also engage in illegal activities. So if you take the access that they've leveraged in Sudan, for example, they've also been using their access to gold mines to conduct very large-scale gold smuggling activity through military-linked airports and through the logistics links that they have there to illegally extract gold from the country. So it's it's not that they're just engaging on a good-faith basis. They're using these to also engage in illicit activity. If you look in Central African Republic, they've been using using force to to extract gold. They've also you know, been engaging in human rights abuses that have been linked to their mining operations in Sudan and in Central African Republic. And in Mali, you know, linked to death killings of civilians and torture and lots of human rights related issues. So it's not that this can be thought of in the same way as other mining concessions, for example, that's linked to this broader spectrum of legal and illegal activity. And you see, that's just it. Organised crime isn't always clear. There is often a legitimate element to the business, a facade of legitimacy, like the tip of an iceberg floating on the ocean surface the larger body hidden from the view beneath the waves. Because when you look at Wagner and the affiliated companies combined with the realities on the ground, they sure start to look like another organised crime group. From the way that we see it of having looked at Wagner and also tried to put it in context of Russian organised crime engaging in Africa over the over the past years, I think it does seem like it is a, is a fair designation in the sense of they are engaging in large scale like natural resource smuggling, illicit use of force to defend those interests as well. Fundamentally, those are the actions of a criminal group. Just a side note, the use of force has not just been aimed at artisanal miners. In 2018, three Russian journalists who were investigating the Wagner Group in the Central African Republic were assassinated. Friends and family turned out in Moscow to bid farewell to three journalists killed last Monday while on a reporting mission in the Central African Republic. Kirill Radchenko, Alexander Rastogoyev and Orhan Jamal were investigating the work of a private Russian security firm in the country when they were ambushed at a roadblock by a group of people and shot dead. Their driver managed to escape and later told authorities that the attackers spoke neither French nor Sango, the two official languages of the country. The dossier centre concluded that the official version of common robbery was refuted by the facts and that military instructors employed by Yevgeny Prigozhin's company are probably involved in the incident. Now, you might have realised that I've been referring to Merowi Gold in the past tense, and that's because the company sold its tailing processing facility to a company called El Solage for $1.8 million. But it doesn't take much to see beyond the facade, as shown in this CNN investigation. As we approach, the red flag of the former Soviet Union blows in the wind. Increasingly used by Russian nationalists, it brazenly marks the Merowi Gold compound. A Russian tanker sits next to it. We get to the entrance and decide... CNN's chief international investigative correspondent, Nima El-Bakhir, asked... Is this the Russian company? At which point the security guard, dressed in his Borussia Dortmund shirt, said, Yes. Then the reporter goes on to ask if they can see the Russian manager. 
According to CNN's investigations, the transfer of Meroe Gold's assets to Al Salaj was because the company needed to be obscured due to too much US scrutiny. They needed front companies. Here's Ken Opala. Well-connected South Sudanese are the fronts for Russian companies in Sudan. These are people close to or relatives of top military leaders. They own companies here and there that do business with the government. And if you look closely, these companies have Russian connections. But after the coup against Omar al-Bashir, the anti-corruption committee blocked it, calling the transfer a crime against the state because it's illegal in Sudan to have an undeclared foreign partner. A month after this report, the second coup took place in October 2021, at which point the new military government dismantled the committee and waved the transfer through. In addition to this, a number of employees of Meroe Gold now list their company as El Salaj. In February this year, the head of security of El Salaj was arrested for trafficking five kilograms of gold. Allegations the employee denies. Although the CEO rightly pointed out that if these allegations are correct, it doesn't mean the whole company is doing something illegal. It's also important to note that Al Salaj states that they have no ties to Wagner. The gold industry has huge potential in Sudan. They're currently the third largest producer of the metal after Ghana and South Africa. But the important word there is potential. According to some, it's underdeveloped and accounts for just 4% of GDP. Here's Khaloud again. Yeah, I mean, gold is, has become central to Sudan's economy. You know, Sudan is not a poor country. So it's just consistently been poorly managed because of the way that, that you know, several regimes, certainly the Bashir regime and now the, the junta, have, you know, sort of focused on the extractive industry in order to ensure their political survival, it has led to, I think, an overemphasis on gold. And so gold has become the most important resource in Sudan, even if it may not ordinarily be so in a much healthier economy. Now, bear in mind that according to Bloomberg News, Sudan's central bank reported that the country exported 27 tonnes of gold, worth around $1.6 billion in the first nine months of 2022. But the Sudanese government has also said that as much as 80% is likely smuggled across its borders. A recent CNN investigation said it could be as high as 90%. If that percentage is correct, it's worth around $13.4 billion. In 2021, 32.7 tonnes was unaccounted for, which is $1.9 billion, although many considered this an underestimation. Regardless, these numbers are huge. And as a consequence, journalist Mo Hashim, who we heard from in the last episode, has a different view on the importance of gold to the Sudanese economy at the moment. Gold is not important for the Sudanese economy. It's important for the Sudanese military and the RSF because it allows them to maintain their control. Because the real returns of gold are not making it into the Sudanese economy. Of course, it's clear that not all of this gold ends up in Russia or in the pockets of Wagner. So where does it all go? Previously sanctioned countries have found ways around sanctions using gold. A paper by the GI from last year looked at this. It's called Going for Gold, Russia, Sanctions and Illicit Gold Trade. It talks about how Russia flew Venezuelan gold to various markets like Uganda, Turkey and the UAE, and then flying the converted dollars and euros back to Venezuela. Turkey and Iran's Gas for Gold scheme. Turkey purchased gas from Iran in its currency lira, this was then taken by Iranian gold traders to buy gold in Turkey. It was then subsequently moved to the gold markets of the UAE and exchanged for foreign currency before arriving in the Iranian state coffers. Job done. Here's Khaloud. You know, Russia has a lot of sanctions on it. So its ability to be able to offload any gold that makes it to Russia's shores is hampered by these sanctions, whereas the UAE is very well placed to actually launder gold for the Russians and for others as well. And of course, it has one of the biggest gold markets in the world and, and, and has in its positioned itself, actually, not just since the invasion of Ukraine, but certainly before that, to be able to be sort of the retailer of African resources. So this is, I think, just a new iteration of that. But because the UAE is a patron of General Hemeti of the Rapid Support Forces, there's also that political dimension of keeping and maintaining those systems in order to enrich their client in Sudan and, of course, vice versa in the UAE. 
Now, just to finish on this discussion of gold, we need to look at why Wagner target natural resources, and in this case, gold, and how that relates to the symbiotic relationship between Russian businesses and the state. Here's Julia Stanyard. That is also something that as sanctions have ramped up, it becomes more of a economic and political priority for, for Wagner and given their relationship with the Russian state, for the Russian state as well, to open up these channels of getting access to funds in a different way. So it can operate in this quid pro quo way that they can get access to natural resources in return for the mercenary troops that allows them to you know, bypass the international banking system in, in those ways. And I think that other researchers and experts that have been looking at this issue as well, it's often seen in, seen in that sense. That's the advantage that it offers them, engaging in the gold sector and in gold smuggling as a way of accessing funds. And finally, we come to the designation. Remember at the end of the last episode, I played a clip from the National Security Council spokesman in the US, John Kirby where he announced that the U.S. had designated the Wagner Group a transnational criminal organization. The Department of Treasury will be designating Wagner as a significant transnational criminal organization under Executive Order 13581 as amended. So what does this all mean? Well, the man to ask is Jason Blazakis, professor and director of the Center on Terrorism, Extremism and Counterterrorism at the Middlebury Institute of International Studies and former director of the Counterterrorism Finance and Designations Office at the Bureau of Counterterrorism, U.S. Department of State. So I think it's important to understand for listeners that the Wagner Group is an organization that has been around since 2014. It was an important force to the Russian Federation's advances to take over territory in Ukraine, specifically Crimea. And the international community responded, including the United States, levying sanctions a wide range against the Wagner Group, starting back in 2017 during the Trump administration, when the group was first designated under Executive Order 13660 um, for violating uh, Ukraine's sovereignty. You fast forward in time, over the, the next five years, you have the group sanctioned through various other executive orders, one of which by the Department of State was issued in November of 2022 under Executive Order 14024, because the group was operating in defense of the Russian Federation's economy, essentially accumulating arms and material for the Russian current um, invasion of Ukraine. So under that backdrop, the most recent transnational criminal organization designated by the United States, which was culminated about a month ago, that executive order is one in which labeled the group a criminal organization. But the United States, interestingly enough, announced the designation one week before they actually had the designation culminate and get finalized. And I think that's indicative of the fact that the tool itself didn't bring anything new to the fight against Wagner, because Wagner already, as an organization, was subject to restrictive measures and sanctions by the United States. The value in the designation is more symbolic, and I think it's in the sense of the organization being called out for its criminal activity across the globe, which is absolutely something that they've been engaged in, in places like Africa, for instance. Now, this is super interesting. This means that the US, through Executive Order 13581, puts the Wagner Group on a similar level as groups like the Yamaguchi-Gumi Yakuza clan, MS-13, the Kinahan Organized Crime Group. So I guess the question to ask is, is this designation right? I think that's a really fascinating question. I think in in one sense, it, it is accurate in that it is calling out the Wagner Group for engaging in criminal activity to secure financing. But it's very different from Yakuza or MS-13 or other conventional criminal organizations, because as we think about the, the cycle in which bad actors accumulate their money and how they spend their money, the Wagner Group spends its money in a very different way from Yakuza. Wagner is spending its financing to carry out politically motivated acts of violence in a wide range of places like Ukraine. They're literally paying for their members to go fight a war. And in that sense, it's very different from groups like the Yakuza or MS-13, who certainly wouldn't spend their money along those lines. They, they want to keep their money. They want to use that money to further their business operations 
Wagner is different in that respect. They're using their money to further some of the political objections of the Russian Federation as it relates to Russia's war in Ukraine. So Wagner have been designated a transnational organized criminal group, at least according to the United States. Yet as Jason says, it doesn't really bring anything new to the fight. Then what does this actually achieve in places like Africa? I think that the impact that the designations will have and have had in Africa have been minimal. There haven't been any reports that reflect that the Wagner Group has had any assets frozen because of the designations. There haven't been any individuals arrested because of the designations. We haven't seen since 2017, Wagner has been designated, any African states such as Mali, Central African Republic, Sudan, distance themselves from the relationship that they have with Wagner because of the designation. So it's going to be very difficult to implement these designations because Wagner as an organization is filling a void these countries perceive that they have in their national security architecture. And that is chiefly the ability to combat extremist groups in their territory. And, and there's no doubt that there has been an expansion of ISIS activity and Al-Qaeda activity in Africa, particularly West Africa, that is of great concern to countries like Mali and the Central African Republic. Now, the deal Wagner has struck with these countries, providing security for access to natural resources and to gain access to things like timber in the Central African Republic or diamonds in the Central African Republic or gold in Sudan or gold in Mali, they, they receive the benefits of having this relationship financially, and they gain access to commodities that are portable, can be moved very easy, and aren't susceptible to sanctions uh, measures, right? These are things that could help evade sanctions, and it's very important in that context. But what these countries really aren't getting, though, what Wagner promised to them is more security in fighting, actually, ISIS and al-Qaeda. If anything, ISIS and al-Qaeda have expanded since Wagner's been on the ground in these countries. But on the flip side, countries like the United States and Western Europe haven't really invested in the way that they probably should have in places like Central African Republic and Mali. And I think there's this desperation that exists on the continent as it relates to the invitation Wagner has received. It's, it's one that is an invitation that is based on, on desperation. But we also have to be mindful of the kinds of governments that are, are working with Wagner right now. And they tend to be more of a authoritarian strain. Mali, of course, had a coup in which we now have senior military leaders who run the country. So it's also interesting to see the kinds of countries Wagner is operating in as well, countries in, in which there is more of an authoritarian grip. And it's not just the US that has ramped up sanctions against Wagner and those individuals and companies associated with the group. The EU recently announced that eight individuals and seven entities were placed on the EU global human rights sanctions regime. These included Meroe Gold and its director, who were accused of exploiting and exporting of Sudanese gold to Russia. M-Invest, described as a cover entity for the Wagner Group's operations in Sudan, and that it provided support for such abuses committed in Sudan. The Wagner designations are related to the broader US, UK, EU, the West, for lack of a better phrase, is efforts to counter the ability of the Russian Federation to garner finance as it's under crippling sanctions. And, and Wagner is an important group because, again, it is involved in harvesting precious minerals and things like timber that could allow the Wagner Group um, in the Russian Federation by extension to circumvent the designations which are significant that have been placed on the, the Russian Federation. The Russian Federation is generally blackballed from the formal financial system of the international community, and it needs to be creative in how it secures financing. And we're at a point now where the United States and other governments absolutely recognize that the Russian Federation is being created through the auspices of groups like Wagner. So in that sense, it is part of that broader counter-Russian strategy to essentially ensure that the Russian Federation can't accumulate as many resources as it needs to further wage war in Ukraine. 
The outcome of the current fighting between the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces could have a huge impact on Wagner and its ability to operate. But equally, we saw how quickly and dynamically they were able to pivot after the fall of Omar al-Bashir. But right now, for the people of Sudan, there is a greater concern, and that's the ongoing violence. And so before ending, I wanted to share with you what Mariam al-Mahdi said, the former first minister of Sudan, who resigned after the second coup in 2021, speaking to Al Jazeera on Saturday, the 15th of April. I am here sitting in my house, listening to the uh, voices of the uh, uh, exchange of armor, uh, listening to the voice of the airplanes above the skies of uh, Khartoum, the capital. And I really feel very sad and very angry. Actually, I'm enraged. And I, 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 I say to both of them, shame on you, both of you. You have been entrusted uh, for this great revolution. And uh, you already committed an unsensical coup. And we came back to our senses as Sudanese, uh, rational people and wise uh, leaders. And you again pledged that you will deliver back the, uh, the, 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 the power to the civilians. And now while the civilian operation, the political operation it is reaching towards its end, uh, they come this eruption of this nonsensical war that is de demonstrates again the uh, how these uh, two armed men uh, regard the Sudanese people. That's it for this episode of Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'd like to thank Mo, Khalud, Ken, Justin, Thierry, Julia and Jason for being part of these podcasts. If you want to read the GI report, The Grey Zone, it's available in the podcast notes. You'll also find an extensive list of research material from this episode, including the various investigations and papers that I've mentioned. This has been Deep Dive from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening.